You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome back again with the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Thanks again, and we are getting into the beginning of June. The hot summer sun is among us. I've been sweating my tail off. I got the good old farmer's tan walking crop fields. What have you been up to, Robbie? Uh, just getting ready for the wedding and oh man, set, you are uh, in the, moving into the house. The last part. Yeah, yep. you got the house all squared away now. Yep, or? everything finally made up. My final phone calls and got everything set up with this and that and that and this. And you're not going to miss that, are you? No, Such not at all. Like I thought I was done when I when we settled on the house and then we had a month there in between moving in and the settlement and moving in and I was just phone call after phone call and now nowadays it's everything's an operator or they want you to do it online. Well you don't get straight answers either way, so I had to sit on a waiting call call waiting for an hour and forty minutes the other day. And oh uh, it's just it's just a big pain in the butt, but yeah. So finally get to start moving in, and we're excited. Well, yeah, you ought to be. It's the next big transition. But yep. have you ever signed so many papers in your life? No. You? <laughs> no. I remember that when was, I when we did it, it was like, what in the absolute is this? Yeah. No. And I would say more than three quarters of it, eighty percent of it, I'm never gonna need to look at or use. So it's they're just all formality and. So many people talk about how much they enjoy the house shopping and like how much fun that is. In all reality, I didn't enjoy it. I thought it was stressful as all get out. Maybe it's just because it was the market we had to act fast. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, going and seeing houses and stuff like it's cool. But like, oh my word, it's it's insane. The, the, the just everything that goes on and the stress and oh my gosh, I know. I think I've, if I had more money, it'd be more fun because you got to get to look at more houses. But well, yeah. <laughs> Well, even that too, like as you're going through, 
you know, you have friends and family that yeah. might have bought like one or two houses in their lifetime, and then they're an expert. Oh so yeah, then yeah, they, that, that too. Yeah. Oh my word! Yeah. It's like I know you mean well, but I, based on what I'm talking about with the professionals, you don't know what you're talking no. about. No, and you have always have those friends that are like, "Oh, I'll buy a fixer upper." Well, I don't have the time, nor do I want to have the time to fix even, it up. <laughs> even if I had the time. <laughs> I have zero interest. <laughs> that same, and, you yeah. know, some people have gifts of stuff like that yep. that they can just take it. I, I'm somebody that, like, if I look at something wrong, it's going to break. Yeah. So for no, me to just say I'm going to fix it, like, I'm, we're sitting right here in my basement, and I'm looking around at the basement, <laughs> and, I mean, my, my favorite part about the basement is, is my mounts and stuff I have down here, but I just look at the projects I want to do and, like, redoing this and redoing that and changing this lighting around and put different siding up and adjust. Like, the flooring sitting next to you? <laughs> yeah, the, the flooring that made its way to the basement and never made it onto the floor. It's in its original package yet. <laughs> I just, I have no interest. And it's like, it's like pulling teeth to get yeah. me to do that. Because whenever I do have free time, I'm doing one of two things. I want to be with the family or I want to be doing stuff for hunting. Yep. That's just how I now am. I know. But anyway, so this week we had a pretty cool conversation with the Pennsylvania State Bear Biologist. Yeah, it was... Uh... I say this every time, learned a lot, but this time it was really cool to get a, I guess, different perspective on things. I mean, we've talking to a lot of hunters, and every hunter has a different way of going about things, but getting a more of a scientific outlook on, on bear populations, and she even touched on bear hunting. That was, mm. it was, it's, it was very cool. Certainly. Um, I always really enjoy and appreciate the science behind stuff uh, it just when you can quantify it yeah it, yep. it makes it easier to make decisions yeah and i can always appreciate that one of the, one of the things that i found so cool first of all she is em, this is emily we're talking about emily uh emily carollo i think i said her name correctly um she is a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. I, I mean, the amount of things that goes on in her head about black bear, and she loves to talk about black bear, which all all the better because we love to learn about black bear. Yep. Um, but the wealth of knowledge, but the really cool thing that I, I've picked up on in our conversation, you know, prior and during our uh, our, our episode that we recorded, she she didn't grow up in a hunting family. Um, she yeah. didn't, uh, she didn't start out hunting, but as she's, you know, progressed and, and started this job and somewhere in her career through, through school and, and, you know, transitioning to, uh, you know, game biology, she's taken a significant interest to it and loves that well-rounded picture of hunting in game management yeah and that is so important I, I listened to a podcast not that long ago with dr craig harper uh, as a guest and he was talking about the real concern of how you know in the past 20 30 years the amount of hunters that were actually working in the sciences and, and game management stuff was decreasing and that's a real significant problem if somebody that is making decisions or, or using the science to make decisions for population management and, and ultimately hunting seasons decisions and bag limits and stuff like that you know if they don't have an understanding of hunting and hunting culture there can be a lot of issue with that so from emily's perspective you know she didn't start out hunting but 
she really has a a, a passion to learn about it. Yep. You know, the way we were interested in learning more about black bear and habits and you know trends we're seeing in the management plan and stuff like that, she's just as interested just to know about hunting. Yeah. <laughs> she she said at one point she's like I'm a what she say I'm a crappy deer hunter but I like doing yeah, it. I like doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw I found that very cool too. It's you don't see that a lot. Someone even in our, in our area, even the people who don't hunt, some of them don't even have an open mind about hunting even though they grew up around it. She didn't even grow up around it at all being from northern New Jersey and she still comes into it with an open mind uh, both scientifically and she says it a lot culturally with uh, the Pennsylvania hunters. Yeah, like I said, fantastic episode. You know, she is a person who would be a welcome guest on our show anytime. Before we get to this episode, real quick, I um, want to do some housekeeping stuff and shout out to Little Mountain Outfitters. Those guys are uh, are really gearing up here as we get closer and closer to archer season. You know, turkey season's over, and I swear a lot of people, you know, flip the switch, turkey season's over, and starting to think about their bows. And if you want to get a new bow, if you want to get tuned up, if you need to get arrows, accessories, anything like that, Little Mountain Outfitters has you covered in Richland, Pennsylvania. They are a fantastic shop, a ton of knowledge, a ton of experience, um, fantastic um, customer service. And not only are they great with the archery side of things, but they do a little bit extra. And at the moment, I am renting the, I think I can say this because I'm pretty sure they they advertise this, I'm renting their tractor and no-till drill to plant my summer food plots. But, uh, you know, they also have a full line of real-world food plot seed and they are uh, they're, they're they're not just a, a one-stop shop for archery they're they're kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of things in hunting and uh they're, they're a place that if you haven't been to you need to check them out they're a great place so little mountain outfitters in richland pennsylvania and with that let's get to this episode on the phone with us today we've got emily from the pennsylvania game commission emily Thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening. Um, if you wouldn't mind, introduce yourself and uh, tell me a little bit about your job. Sure. So um, as Mitchell mentioned, my name is Emily Guello. I am the Pennsylvania Game Commission's Black Bear Program Manager. So I manage all things Black Bear for the state of Pennsylvania. And I've been here for a little over a year and a half now. Um, I went to the University of Virginia and I did my, I got my undergrad there in environmental science. And then I went to Penn State and got my master's in wildlife and fisheries science. Okay. And that was kind of really where I realized I always joke with people like I grew up thinking a wildlife biologist must be like Jeff Corwin or Steve Irwin, you know, like from <laughs> Animal Planet. And then I realized that, oh no, like this is a real job that I can have and do really cool things. So when I went to Penn State, I kind of got the taste of it. And I was like, yep, that's what I want to be as a wildlife biologist. Was Miraculously, it, I made it. <laughs> that wasn't exactly your intent when you started out, though? Um, I knew, I always knew I wanted to work with animals and specifically wildlife. I'll be honest with you. I originally was like, I'm going to be a vet. And then okay. in high school, I couldn't dissect an earthworm. And realized that that probably wasn't going to work. Did you have an interest in game species from the start, or how did that evolve? Um, yes and no. So I've always loved predators. Um, I had a a college professor once. He was like, "Man, I feel like 
the people that look the least likely, you know, like small, I always joke, I'm like the little woman that's back there dragging these bears out of the traps and stuff like that. And he was like, I swear you guys are like fierce and mighty because you want to go after like the big and scary predators. And that is definitely where I've always wanted to be. To be honest, I love cats. I love like big cats. One day, one day I'll get the opportunity to work with them. But um, I kind of like, I don't want to say accidentally, but got into the bear world, um, not as like a direct path. Like I didn't tell mm-hmm. myself I'm going to be a black bear biologist. Um, and I just took every opportunity I could to volunteer with different projects. I mean, herps, like hares, mm-hmm. coyotes, fur bears, black bears. And I had actually, after grad school, was trapping bears for the game commission for a PhD student out of Penn State. And that was kind of like my first introduction to black bears. I also grew up in northern New Jersey. So I'm very, very, You're very aware, aware of black of bears. Black bears. <laughs> yeah. And, and the crazy um, management things that happen over there, right? Oh, dear God. Yeah. I grew up with it. That's when people were like, oh, in New Jersey, I'm like, that's <laughs> well we won't go down that rabbit hole too much here tonight yeah, um, probably not <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that i find so interesting so robbie and i are avid big game hunters um i've been mm-hmm. fortunate enough in my in my hunting career i've been able to harvest two bear in pennsylvania um, been part of others wow. and it's a cool accomplishment but what's so funny is you know in the whatever it's been 20 years of going after stuff like that um, you know, my deer hunting, my bear hunting, my turkey hunting. I think out of all the, the quarry that I go for, it is the animal that I know the least amount about. Um, what mm-hmm. I find so interesting with bear hunting is uh, usually the most successful are those that just get together with a group of guys and make pushes and um, <clears throat> and and chase bear that way. And that's a great way to do it. And that's how I've been fortunate enough. But there's a lot of... Um, details or science-oriented things that um, I'm anxious to pick your brain about because I think it could help anybody be a, a better hunter or a better understanding of why things are happening the way they've been happening the past few years with bear. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool that you bring up as well, I mean, first of all, the fact that you've harvested two Pennsylvania black bears is pretty impressive because I've met plenty of folks just mm-hmm. in the short amount of time that I've been here that, you know, have been hunting black bear for 30 years and they've harvested their first black bear. And it is an incredibly low success rate um, here in Pennsylvania and kind of, you know, intentionally. So that's how we, the methods that we allow and the regulations that we have here in Pennsylvania are meant to keep it where the harvest is manageable because mm-hmm. black bears are such a popular species to hunt. So, I mean, it's, it, it is, very helpful to understand their biology, their behavior, their movements, to have better success because there are many things that would make, you know, harvesting the black bear far easier mm. that some states allow that we just can't in Pennsylvania because the culture is so strong, realistically. is you know, we have the past couple of years, we've had over 200,000 licenses, bear licenses sold. I mean, that's 200,000 wow. hunters. So if we were to increase the opportunity as far as, allowing for certain kinds of regulations like, um, you know, baiting or using dogs. I mean, the success rate would be far higher than what our population could withstand because of the amount of hunters that we just have in the woods, which is the same for, for deer and many other species in Pennsylvania. That makes a lot of sense. So onto mm-hmm. that subject with the opportunity, um, 
you know, when I started bear hunting, um, it, we had uh, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday season. And before that, I know there was a lot of fluctuations with bear seasons and you know, all the way into the seventies. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to bother, you know, going through that, but I know from my hunting career perspective, I've gone from the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday hunt to the Saturday, Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah, Saturday, Sunday, th- went three, yeah. then four days. Yeah, I think. Sunday, yeah. and now right. it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Tuesday. And then <laughs> I believe we introduced the archery hunt that was the week prior to the rifle season, leading up to that. And then I believe we kind of shifted gears, and we, you, the a muzzleloader season started here in October, and then archery season got extended. So I'm just curious, as, as somebody who has no idea about black bear and why the seasons are changing, and there's, of course, a lot of, um, I, I'm going to call them old wives' tales of things being said by hunters that don't have the science behind it. W- would you mm-hmm. enlighten us on some of the things that are happening or going on or, or the direction that the state is trying to head with those season changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it really, over the course of, you know, several years and years way before I was even here, um, that the idea of introducing additional seasons in particular, just additional seasons, ignoring the changes and, you know, adding a Sunday or whatever, because that's kind of a, a different topic. I can get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea of, especially in, in 2002, was when the extended season was introduced by Mark Turnett. And the main reason behind introducing extended seasons was to help with bear population management in the hope that offering an extended season and the regular season or the general firearm season would increase the harvest to essentially help stabilize bear populations in places where it's exceptionally high and has been high for a long time. And those are really in like the core bear ranges in particular in the Northeast is where it first opened up. I forget the exact counties. It was like Pike and Carbon, maybe. Yeah, that would sound right. Exactly. Yeah. So the the bear population, especially in the Northeast, in combination with the fact that there are a lot of people as well in some of these areas and bear conflict becomes a major management point. We, in, in some way in Pennsylvania, do have the opportunity because of the popularity of, of black bear hunting culture to manage to a certain extent, because hunting isn't the only answer to bear conflict, it is part of it, it's not the only answer, to basically use population management to help manage conflict. Um, and in addition to that, realizing that the bear population in these areas could sustain an additional harvest and be okay is another reason why, you know, some of these seasons started to come about, in particular like the archery season, mm-hmm. to offer really more opportunity for hunters to harvest the black bear instead of just, you know, in the early 2000s, I think it was like, you know, a, a three-day, right? Yeah, like right. a three-day event. So to just offer more opportunity for black bear hunters to get out in the woods and the harvest the bear. So that's kind of where these early earlier seasons that were introduced in 2009 came about. The first reason is that we know our bo- black bear population is ex- incredibly strong in Pennsylvania. I mean, 
we have at this point, you know, almost 16,000 bears in 2019 the estimate was almost 20,000 bears. I mean, wow. that's a lot of bears. Out of curiosity, and, how does that estimate created or, or how, do, how do you determine that, that estimate? So uh, that estimate is the way we do it right now is we use a, a system called Mark Recapture. Okay. And what we do every single summer, every single spring, summer, and like very early fall, like just the beginning of September, we trap black bears and tag them. Now, this also includes bears that are captured for conflict and relocated, et cetera. So every bear that we trap and handle gets, a, gets an ear tag. It's basically a unique way to identify them if they come back in the harvest. And so during that trapping time when we're tagging these bears, that's a marking period. And then the harvest is when we use um, or would be considered our, our recapture period. And without getting like really far into statistics, because it's also not really like I'm good at them, but sure. definitely not as good as some people are um, out there. Right? Me neither. Trust me, uh, Robbie. If I try yeah. to talk technical, Robbie goes, what the heck are you saying? <laughs> exactly. Like, Please stop. Um, basically, what we do is the percentage of marked bears that comes back into the harvest is representative of the percentage of bears that were harvested overall. And then we can extrapolate that into a population estimate. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So that's how we do our, and honestly, we're one of the few states and really agencies in the country. And I'm not even kidding you that do such a, I wouldn't say precise because nothing is ever exact actually we give a, a point estimate, right? Like we give that estimate of 16,000 bears, but we always have a range, right? But for most states, they're not estimating black bear populations on an annual basis as recent as last year. A lot of states and agencies will use what's called an, an age reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so they used the ages that come in in the harvest and they reconstruct what the population looks like and get an estimate of how many bears is in the state. Are, are in the state. So we're really fortunate that we know exactly how many bears are harvested every year. We know exactly our hunter success rate. We have population estimates to be able to follow trends. And we even have population estimates for most of the WMUs, the wildlife management units, that contain a healthy level of black bears. Mm. So we get it as far down as the WMU scale, which is pretty awesome when it comes to management because we have all the data to make quality management decisions. So getting back to like our seasons that got introduced, we knew that we could sustain a few years of an early harvest while also running a research project to understand how that early harvest might be affecting the population and if right. we need to adjust it, you know, but knowing that like, you know, a decrease in a few thousand bears is not going to kill the population in, in Pennsylvania. This, these bears are are here to stay. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah. The uh, with with that, so we we, we kind of I, I kind of always assumed that. I mean, why would we open more seasons up if we didn't have a growing population or sustainable population? So that's kind of a um, a simple assumption. But one of the I guess we're gonna say street talk, um, coffee shop talk type things that oh, I'll hear people say <laughs> that if you know have have gone through is um, that the early seasons that pregnant sows are getting killed and it's decreasing the population. I know nothing about that, and is that something that's actually accurate? And if it's accurate, 
um, from my perspective, if we have a sustainable population, um, we probably are okay. But c- can you enlighten me on, on a statement when somebody says something like that? Yeah, and that is a really great question. Um, what people are essentially kind of referring to in the terms that we refer to is we don't necessarily look at, you know, for example, we don't necessarily say, you know, this population or this many bears harvested is going to be a problem. It's more along the lines of what is our harvest rate or what portion of the population has been harvested? Like how many bears are we removing from the population um, as a percentage is what we're more concerned about. And there's, there's multiple different um, harvest rates. So we have our overall harvest rate, which has been around right around 20% for the last de- couple decades. I mean, it's been pretty even across the board. Um, with a couple years here and there, that is like a little bit closer to 25. But you know, research has kind of shown that a harvest rate of around 20 to 25% stabilizes a population, right? Depending right, on right. what your are. Um, now, as far as our female harvest rate, so how many females are being removed from the population, right, has gone up because of these earlier seasons. And the main reason why is because, in particular, pregnant sows tend to den, the, or, or they are the earliest denners, but mm-hmm. they tend to den as early as mid-November, Oh, wow. So a lot of those sows are already removed from the potential harvest in those later seasons. So, for example, the general rifle season or extended seasons, um, anything that starts to occur after mid-November, the likelihood that you're going to harvest a pregnant sow goes down because they're starting to den. And mm-hmm. obviously in the state of Pennsylvania, it's illegal to harvest the den bear. Right. <laughs> um, so with that being said, that is the research that's specifically the research that we started when these seasons opened up and it was specifically and is specifically looking at how the female harvest rate may be affected by these earlier seasons and what's the harvest vulnerability of these female bears in relation to um, like crop um, mass production and their home ranges and their movements during the harvest season, et cetera. Sorry, my cat was trying to interrupt. Oh, no problem. <laughs> um, so that research is really going to help guide us when ma- making or you know, making any kind of adjustments to these early seasons, if we feel we need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, at this point, you know, there's like, I'm not going to say yes or no, we're definitely going to change it. We're not going to change it because I don't have too many things. Hey, I don't have that research. And B, we're actually working on a new way to estimate our population called statistical um, population reconstruction or SBR. Okay. And that's going to be a really cool thing. Long story short, I can get into that later. But <laughs> yeah, so the research was started specifically to understand how our female harvest rate is changing, what that means for the population, what female harvest vulnerability is like. And so now we have, you know, a few years of data specifically just related to population trends, the female harvest rates that I come up with and, um, you know, WMU population estimates, et cetera. And we'll also have this fall, hopefully, um, 
the some some preliminary results from this research that's being done by a graduate student out of Oklahoma State. Mm. So that is not necessarily street talk. That is something I specifically have brought up in especially our January commission meeting saying like, this is what we're concerned about. It's not necessarily the total number of bears. It's specifically our, our harvest rates is what we're concerned about and what our female harvest rate looks like because females are, you know, the main ones that affect recruitment when it comes into the population. They're the ones having the cubs and bringing new cubs into the following year. I think the biggest thing that I take away from all of that, Emily, and correct me if I say anything that's out of line this, but from my take is the black bear in Pennsylvania have been a huge success story as their populations mm-hmm. have continued to grow. And even though we, we continued to see higher harvest rates, we see um, more um, liberal hunting seasons open up and more opportunity. Um, from my perspective, we're, we're the, the amount of human bear conflicts is still up it, it maybe it reduced maybe it didn't but it was it was still enough to justify and f- f- you know the, the cool thing as a as you know, anybody who goes onto the game commission's website you can see all of the the harvest data down to the township level which is really cool when you're talking about planning hunting but um the 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 first year for that season we had a record year harvest but since then we've kind of been in a you know no significant difference you know, we, we've we've maintained a stable bear harvest, and from my eyes, that seems like a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's 2019 was an exception, right? Like, in the sense, it was the, the most bears we've harvested since we began recording this. Um, and this is going back, you know, into the early 1900s that we've begun, or we were tracking the number of bears harvested throughout the state. So, it, it's an exception to the rule rather than the rule. Our sure. last two years have been really right around average. They've only been a, maybe a right. hundred, two hundred bears over average. So it's not necessarily like the total amount of bears. We're not harvesting some crazy amount of bears any different than what we've done in the past. It's just what it's specifically that female harvest rate is, is basically the only rate that has changed. And we have seen decreases over the last couple of years in the statewide population estimates and in some, you know, WMUs when I break it down. Um, now, again, what I have reiterated in our January commission meetings is like, if we need to change these seasons, we're going to change them. We're not over here trying to just kill every bear in Pennsylvania. And I know that's not only on like hunters' minds, right? Because they want to be able to continue hunting the bear, but it's also on the minds of people who don't hunt. And there's a lot of concern about that as far as, um, you know, oh my gosh, the bear population has gone down, but it, I try to make it abundantly clear in the commission meetings and anyone I ever talk to is there are a lot of bears in Pennsylvania. There are a lot. And bears are going nowhere. And if we need to make changes, we absolutely will. We just want to make sound, data-backed, research-driven decisions rather than just seeing a single number and being like, oh, this is wrong. And, and getting rid of something that we maybe don't have to change as much as we thought we did. And I know from uh, somebody who sits at the end of of doing all the play and none of the work, I've enjoyed the hard work that you guys have done and these ample liberal seasons that we've been able to enjoy and and be able to have the opportunity for you guys to do more research and learn more because it's kind of uncharted waters. But it's uh, from my eyes, I've, I've been really happy and and you know, it, it seems to be a major success. Um, I know our we we 
Robbie and I have the privilege of hunting in a location that has uh, an extended season, so we get to uh, get together with a group of guys oh, and awesome. be deer and bear hunting, and that's yeah. we've we've had a lot of success doing that. It's yeah. it's a fun time, um, but that's kind of the the same old you know group hunting mentality. And I I kind of want to shift gears. And you were talking about um, you know you talked about food a little bit, and I, I want to dive into that a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. So in the beginning, you, you congratulated me on killing two bears and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, um, there was no, I I can't talk on this podcast and say there was this major strategy scheme in my success. (laughs) It was truly just being in the right place at the right time. Um, but there's, there's, there are bear hunters out in Pennsylvania that consistently kill bear and, uh, do it like Mm -hmm. at a very, very high rate. And the, the biggest thing that I've learned is, you know, find the food, find bears. So when you look at the state and you kind of look at where the the top counties are, it seems to me that most of the time when you break it down to that township level, it seems to be where the biggest concentration of oaks, acorns are. Is that true? Or can you tell me a little bit about how uh, bear in Pennsylvania or in general for that matter will transition from you know, a time of ample food in summer into early fall and transition to, um, you know, kind of limited food sources, so to speak, in that time frame as we go afield. Yeah, and it's definitely true that one of the best ways, and, you know, you could argue that this is true for almost any species that you're going to be looking to harvest that year, is to find where they need to be. And in the fall, bears, the only thing that's on their mind is eat and eat and eat and eat. They eat upwards of 20,000 calories a day to pack on that, you know, several inch thick fat layer that helps them through the winter. So they are looking for the best crop like mass crop to be able to do that and in the fall it's very simply most of the time acorns beech nuts are a really big one as well mm-hmm. um especially if there's like a, a local crop failure with some of the oaks whether it be white oaks or red oaks etc um they'll turn to beaches um but those are really kind of the main two it earlier in the fall what i have seen hunters have success with with some of these earlier seasons like the archery and muzzleloader season is working with like local farmers that might actually have a crop problem in particular corn is a really Mm -hmm. big one in the fall it's like october seems to be the time that it comes into like that melting stage and not a corn grower so i can't my corn but it's in that stage where where we want to eat it right or it's like the most beneficial has those calories so they experience a lot of conflict during that time. And um, now that bear hunters have the opportunity to harvest a bear during that time frame, you know, if you can, if you can find a farmer that has been having bear problems, I'm sure that they'd be happy to let you harvest a bear. Properly. I mean, maybe I shouldn't speak for farmers, but you know, most of the time for them, it's, it's a money thing. It's monetary. It's how they make their money for their livelihood. So having someone that's willing to help remove a bear um, may be helpful. So in the early seasons, I would suggest, you know, trying to get in touch with local farmers and seeing what they're, what, if they're experiencing any damage or if they have opportunities. Um, but then definitely later on in the fall, finding a solid oak stand 
1000% increases your opportunities to, to come across a bear. That is what they're looking for is hard mast. Now they will also move there. I mean, a bear's home range is pretty big for females, six to eight square miles. And for males, you know, upwards of, of 20 square miles, it's big. Wow. So they move a lot, but if they can find a really good resource, they're going to hang out there as long as they can. That's why conflict is so bad because, you know, people would call and, and ask me about like, oh, the bear's getting into my garbage. And I tried to scare it away and it wouldn't go because, and I tell them like, well, the bear had a really good reason to stay. It found a really great thing to kind of get all those calories, you know, that they, that they need. So it's the same thing in the fall with, with food resources is that they're going to want to hang out in spots where the crop is really good because that's going to provide the opportunity to eat that 20,000 calories a day and they don't have to move much. And in addition to that, bears are lazy. They want the equation of like caloric output to caloric intake to be far more on the caloric intake side. So if they can find a good stand, they're going to be there. The other thing that you mentioned too that I wanted to t- uh, touch on is that drives are very successful um, because you just arguably have more people pushing through the woods. So sure. that's where we've seen like me personally and other people who have been at check stations for a long time have seen certain, certain groups and certain hunting clubs, et cetera. They come in every single year. It might be a different guy every year that's harvesting it, but they come in every year and they always have success. Mm-hmm. So drives are really popular as well. And, and for good reason, because they're one of the more successful ways that you can harvest a bear in Pennsylvania. Sure. It's definitely an odds, odds game being played there. Um, continuing on with the food, you know, you brought up corn. Uh, I, I've definitely seen with some of my growers and, and such that, uh, you know, major corn damage and, and things like that, you know, crop insurance adjustments had to be made, but it's not something that seems to be consistent. So I'm going to take that as natural, uh, mast, natural food sources are still preferred if they mm-hmm. are abundantly available. Um, I, I was, trying to do my math and I, I can't even remember how many acres are in a square mile but I was trying to put like numbers to that perspective 20 square miles um, you know I think about the area that we hunt bear and then I start to think about 20 square miles that's like an insane amount of ground that you can cover and when you talk about localized I mean populations are definitely not um, evenly dispersed they're definitely going to be clustered towards food sources so that's kind of mind-boggling to me when they think about it. you said a females was around eight square miles like six to eight yeah to and eight. now mind you there is some overlap with mm-hmm. that so bears are bears are territorial but they're not like you know a, a canine or or a felid where they're going to be very territorial um you really see that territorial behavior come out more during like the breeding season with right. males in particular, like they'll definitely run off younger males and smaller males and kick them out of the area so they can breed with females. But especially with females and somewhat males, and you have to think with, you know, in some of these areas of Pennsylvania, we technically a density of one bear per square mile. So there's obviously going to be overlap, right? right? But I think if you feel like really wanted to get into it, you could start in the summer. And if you set up a bunch of game trail cameras in a particular area, I'd say like, you know, if you could set up one per every, you know, kilometer squared or something like that, where like you, you just get an idea of where bears are moving in the landscape. Um, you might get a bear that's particularly patterned and they tend to be fairly patterned because 
they know every single year, like, this is where the, this is where the skunk cabbage comes in. And then this is where my raspberries come in. And then this is where the acorns come in. They know all of these things because they've remembered over time. That's another reason why conflict can be so bad is because they remember every person's yard that they found birdseed in. Right. <laughs> so, um, with that being said, if you want to start in the summer and start setting up game trail cameras to see where you're kind of consistently getting bears, more than likely it's probably some sort of regularly traveled area, regularly traveled path. And bears will always take the path of least resistance. They don't want to, you know, unless they really have to, they're not going to like run through a bunch of brush when there's, you know, a, a, a power line right there where they can walk up and there's nothing in their way. That makes sense. Um, sticking with the home range thing for just a second, to your knowledge, is there any significant differences um, when you start to put age in as a factor for home range, you know, uh, I, I, I know that the dispersal of young males is pretty high, but you know, as that age starts to increase, regardless of this, of the sex, um, do you see any differences in that home range? Or does it usually stay pretty consistent? It usually stays pretty consistent. Um, you know, younger individuals, in particular males, less so females, will take a longer amount of time to actually establish that home range. And that's why often, you know, the individuals that do find trouble or are more likely to be harvested are younger individuals because of the fact that they're moving around the landscape at a greater rate than uh, an adult bear that has an established home range. Um, so you, you don't really you don't really notice like a home range difference in, in age in a sense, but you notice a greater amount of movement before a bear, especially male mm -hmm. can settle down and establish that home range. Um, and that can lend to a, a number of different things that that bear can, can encounter. And often actually what you find with females is that daughters will settle in a home range right next to, or if not practically you know, I wouldn't say in, but like overlapping with their, with their mother's home range. Okay. So that's what we've seen over the many years of reproduction uh, studies that we've done in the North Central and in the Northeast is that we'll see, we'll have, you know, a whole family tree of bears collared over years. And we'll have like the grandmother and then the aunt and then the mom and the daughter, like, wow. and they're all right next to each other. It's pretty wild. Okay. That's cool. So, <clears throat> continuing down the road i had a thought and i lost it what you you, you take anything away you want you want to go no, with Ronnie? um when you were talking about uh when bears come in and kind of they're nuisance bears and they uh they come in that you said how they know what houses have bird seed just a kind of a personal question my cousin he has a bear in he's had a bear in into into his trash every every year for the past 3 years and the bear mm -hmm. will come through for about a week, and then he won't see him for a month, and then he'll come through again. If he's coming back every night, how how far do you think it goes away from his yard and then comes back that night to get into his trash? Like, does he go two miles off and does a big loop, or does is he 200 yards away in the woods, up in the woods? That's a really great question. Um you know, without knowing any numbers off the top of my head, I couldn't really give you an exact answer. But what I will say is bears can travel a long distance yeah. in a short amount of time. Yeah. So, I mean, he could just or she could just be making a giant loop and hitting like 
all the houses in the in the nearby area yep. and circling back and hitting hitting your inside the music your friend's house. Yeah. Or so yeah. we, we've kind of established home ranges are a little bit more significantly larger than I had anticipated. I knew it was square miles. I didn't realize it was up to 20. That's pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. We talked about clumps of food dispersal, which from my perspective as a hunter, I think the biggest thing that I'm not doing on a consistent basis is covering enough ground scouting to make sure that I have the most highly concentrated food source in the area I want to hunt. You know, typically Mm -hmm. we go and we hunt, you know, historically good areas that have that, I'm going to say that uh, feeling of bear or or that, uh, that, that sense like this is a, a a bear side hill or a a bedding area in relation to that. Um, And that kind of tails well to my next question. And that's kind of relative distance and in bedding and feeding. And if, if you had to take out the element of hunting pressure, because hunting pressure in any game species is going to change everything. Um, Mm -hmm. But if, if, if we have the ability to take that variable out and we're just seeing bear go from bedding and feeding, is there any sense for bear that they have a preferred bedding location, um, with, with respect to, temperature sunshine shade um moisture things like that um and is there any reason to say that they will travel a further distance for that or is it just going to be the proximity to food and food alone and is that something that maybe is easy to quantify i guess or talk about yeah um i don't i don't know of anything off the top of my head about you know, I can tell you a lot about where they den. Now, clearly, that's not very helpful. I don't want to talk about that in any relation to harvest because that's, again, illegal. Sure, sure. Um, but when it comes to just in general bedding, you know, and, and, you know, sleeping for a little while, whatever it may be, I don't exactly know, you know, if there's any specific things that they would really look for. You know, I would just based on behavior would say that the closer to the food resource, the better. Mm -hmm. Um, And then with that being said, bears naturally without like human pressure and human effects. uh, And this is hunter and both non hunter. It doesn't matter. They are naturally a crepuscular species. So they're, they're active dawn and dusk. They can be active during the day. That's not surprising. Um, But especially when you add that human component, they become far more active at night and that's really to avoid people they don't want to encounter people even in you know suburban settings where bears are used to it for you know a lot more than say a bear that's like in the middle of allegheny national forest um but they do have certain times that they move or they're more likely to move um than others and I would say that overall, those those kinds of bedding sites would be more associated with being close to whatever resource they're looking for. I don't have like an exact thing to sure, say sure. or habitat that I would say. Now, I would just be weary too that if a bear is in the in the harvest season, if you come across a bear that is very reluctant to move from a spot there is a good chance that it is denning. And a lot of people don't realize that here in Pennsylvania and quite a few other Northeast states that bears will just den right on top of the ground. 
they don't necessarily go into like a cave or a rock crevice. They can, and they might go into like a dugout or a tree or something like that. But it's very common for bears to just be right on top of the ground in what looks like a giant bird's nest. So if a bear, if you come across a bear while you're hunting and you can get really close to it, that is a pretty good sign that that bear is dead and you do not want to harvest that bear because it's illegal and you get in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I think some hunters may not realize. Now, granted, if like the bear gets up and moves, you have no idea if it was dead or not. I mean, that's, that's fine. But if it's very reluctant to move, it looks like kind of a, some sort of construction around something like they, they've done a little bit of construction, just walk away. Yeah. Leave the bear alone. Yeah. It makes that, uh, it makes a lot of sense, and like I said, the the whole the, the whole realm behind bedding and feeding. Obviously, you're trying to figure out as a hunter if you're going mm-hmm. by yourself. Is there a way to put the odds in your favor? You know, it's yeah, it's a pretty simple concept when you've got. I think the legal limit is 25 guys, and you can you can line up an area and you know strategically um, make movements. But uh, one of the goals I have is to try to harvest a bear with my bow by myself in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and trying to come up with a strategy. You talked about cameras a little bit and I I hadn't even thought about that much, but um, I I just like your perspective. I guess you talked about, you can start to see patterns. I've seen cases where certain locations, uh, I might have a bear come through on maybe a habitual basis. Um, But I I, putting together the idea of a pattern is is kind of crazy in my mind do i i have to think about a pattern on a much larger scale for a bear you know we talked Mm -hmm. about a 20 square mile um, location you know my idea of patterning as i think you know have the mindset of a deer hunter i'm thinking within maybe a one square mile and really it's got to be a 20 square mile area that i'm i'm trying to pattern and it might be that they're going one direction six miles to this transition and food source this time of year is, is that kind of my lack or misconception prior to this conversation so you know i wouldn't say that like you have to cover the whole idea of a home range right like you don't have to cover the whole thing i think that you can there's in in every home range you know there's always going to be certain areas that fill needs far more than other areas you're going to have like for example in the northeast you could find a lot of really great forest cover but within that forest cover you might find suburban communities and we know that we can't hunt there and, and bears you know going into those areas um it's not going to be as as used depending on, you know, kind of the time and season. So what I would say is, you know, if you have a particular spot that you already like to hunt, if you were to scout early on, you know, in the summer and kind of get an idea of like, okay, there's no stand here, there's no stand here, you know, and maybe you pinpoint like a, a five square mile area mm. that you say, this looks like a pretty good spot for the food that they're going to be looking for in the fall. And then you set up, you know, multiple different game trail cameras to just start to get an idea of where, because it just because there's no mass in that area right now, it doesn't mean that they're not passing through. Um, especially because any acorns left over from last year, they're going to pick them up, you know, that they're not opposed to that by any means. Sure. And you might actually also find that in those areas that they might have some oaks, maybe there's some openings, they have some blueberry bushes or huckleberry bushes, whatever it may be. So 
if you start just getting an idea of where you're starting to get these sightings, and then maybe even because you have them set up in multiple different spots, you might be able to, and I would say might very, um, very obviously because bears are hard to identify individually in pictures, right? But every once in a while, you might get a bear that gets like a unique characteristic or you see tags in its ears and you're like, okay, this tag bear is like, he's walking past these couple cameras. Like, there must be some sort of path. And then that's when you can start to look for other signs like scratchings on trees and flipped rocks, tracks, scat. And then you're starting to get an idea of like where this bear moves, why it moves to certain spots and kind of track it into the fall. So you have an idea of where to start looking in the fall. Certainly. Onto the, I feel like that involves a lot of work, but... <laughs> it, it does, and like, you know, I, I put an insane amount of... Well, I shouldn't say I put an insane amount of work. I used to put in a lot of work. I, I try to put as much work in as possible every year. Um, the fact that career and family and children, you know, come mm-hmm. as my priority, then my, my hunting has kind of taken a little bit more of a back burner. But I still try to do as much as I possibly can to be successful in the deer woods every year. And um, with bear kind of comes in second, I I, I haven't, like, like I said, there's there's things I haven't done to try to learn these things. And therefore, it, it, I think there there's no way around it that if you want to be successful, you're going to have to put some sweat equity in and learn um, or, or be like me and get lucky. Um, one, <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that or just be really lucky. Or just be really lucky. And Some I know people, people just, they buy a bear license every year and they're like, whatever, one day and then. Yeah, and then it happens, you know, one day in their lifetime. Um, (laughs) On to the, continuing with the food sources, I know that there's certain parts of the state. Last year, the gypsy moth infestation in oak trees was a a big deal, and I'm already getting reports from some friends in certain places of the state. They're seeing infestations. I'm assuming that's going to have an impact on the acorn crop, and if it's widespread, will you know if it's greater than the home range of, of a bear and we start to see a, a and it's and a substantially lower amount of acorn productions throughout most of their home range will we see a potentially see a larger fluctuation of of bear movements and therefore bear harvest this year localized to where gypsy malls didn't happen so when mass crop failures do occur, which occur cyclically, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not even necessarily related to gypsy moss. It, it, oaks naturally have a cyclic price or process where um, they have really good mass years and they have some not so great mass years. So it really kind of all depends. So bears are already used to that and they absolutely will move if they need to find food. Because again, during that fall time, it's literally a, a stage called hyperphagia and that is all that is on their mind. Matter of fact, you know, we kind of mentioned a little bit about fitting sakes just before that they're moving almost all the time in the fall. There's like no rest. It's all eat. <laughs> so if the food in their home range is not adequate enough for them to find the calories that they need, they will leave their home range. Now that often it can be deadly. Mm-hmm. I mean, for multiple reasons, not just because of the harvest in the fall, but if they're leaving their home range and crossing major highways or doing other things like that, they can potentially, um, think, sorry, yeah, <laughs> really fine. wants to make an appearance, <laughs> uh, that they can encounter other human problems, right? So with that being said, if you see that there is a lot of damage to the trees, which may not necessarily result in a crop failure, Sure. Um, that 
it may be worth just to scout a couple extra, you know, like an extra slot that that did it wasn't as affected. But bears are already used to that. They go through those cyclic, you know, process of of good mass years and bad mass years. And what I will say is that it definitely, when when mass years are not good for both summer and fall mass, we do see increases in conflict and we do see um, greater distances moved by bears that don't normally leave their home, like adult bears mm-hmm. that don't normally leave their home range. So in a bad mass year, while you might not have the spot you wanted to scout, you might actually have a higher likelihood of encountering a bear that's just wandering, trying to find mm-hmm. food. So it's kind of like a give and take, you know, yeah. which again, I feel like the second one is, well, maybe, you know, like if you're lucky, you'll yeah. come across one that's moving more. Um, so, but I understand the idea of, you know, wanting to try to find a solid spot to find food. Sure. I mean, you've literally two, 200,000 bear licenses and we average what, 3,500 killed a year. So, I mean, that, that's your odds right there. I mean, I want, I want yeah. to put the odds forever in my favor. Um, <laughs> it's like one and a half to two and a half percent. So many people don't know one and a half to two and a half percent of black bear hunters are actually successful, which is crazy. It, it's crazy. And when you talk about the population potential or the the population that we have in the state and to think about that's what gets harvested to me that just goes to show you how incredible their senses are and how incredible they are to adapting um you know the example i give and i've talked about this in a couple other episodes when we talk about bear hunting um i've hunted with a group since i'm 12 years old and we do a lot of consistent bear drives in the same areas and it seems to me in a lot of those drives and the way they're set up it seems we we harvest a lot of younger immature bears and for rightful reason they're they they don't have the experience under their belt that a mature bear has not that we haven't killed mature bears but it's definitely a more likelihood of the the first year away from its mother as a as a two-year-old it's going to be harvested or have the the potential and uh or, or just seeing sows with cubs they're much more visible in that sense and uh there's there's two things that that come to my mind. No, number one, I, I feel like a bear with experience has been through the rigmarole of hunters moving through the woods and and can just find a way to sneak through. And I think their behavior mm-hmm. is. But the, the the other thing is their nose, and mm-hmm. I, that's one thing I don't really know much about. I know they have a good nose. I don't know how good it is. I really don't. I mean, can you kind of shed light on that for me as a hunter? Yeah, so um, without knowing like the how many times greater it is, because I don't know the number off the top of my head, what I can tell you is that, you know, you think about what your dog smells on a, on a regular basis, and it's very similar. I mean, a bear's sense of smell is absolutely incredible. If, if you're, if, if the wind is in the right direction, they'll smell you a mile away. They know you're coming. Hmm. Um, and that's also why I often tell people that like, you know, hike in the woods and are concerned about encountering a bear i'm like trust me those guys know you're coming way before you know you even know that there's a bear in the area and they'll sleuth out of the way and i'm sure you've seen it where you know it's like a 200 pound black bear and all of a sudden it's 20 yards into the woods and you can't see it and you're like there's a massive giant black blob in the woods and i can't see it and i'm 20 yards away from it because they can just sneak in and just disappear um but yeah their sense of smell and then in addition to that their other senses are really, we talk about their sense of smell a lot because it is so fantastic, but their other senses are really great as well. You have to think that 
you know, they're on the level of, while not often predatory, can be occasionally, you know, they are considered in, in a sense, uh, a predator species, right? So their sense of hearing is really fantastic. Um, you know, similar to what you would find in a dog that they can hear all kinds of things from a distance and their eyesight, you know, from things that I have read, they can see pretty clearly upwards of a football field away, which I think for most people is probably <laughs> on par, right? That we can sure. see pretty clearly from a football field away. So all of their senses, but especially, especially their sense of smell is incredible. So that's why they are so good at avoiding people in many different scenarios, you know, just being in the woods or, you know, being in suburban areas and sleuthing around a neighborhood and no one ever knowing, you know, other than the, the trash pulled up their, their driveway, they never knew a bear was there because they're very good at avoiding people. And they know people are a risk, whether it be a hunter or someone in the woods, it doesn't matter. They want to avoid people at all costs. So you're absolutely right that all of those senses combined, you know, make it difficult to track down a bear or get close to one. And then in addition to that, as a bear gets older, they definitely become, they have an established home range. They know where everything is. They don't feel like they need to travel very far unless there's maybe a lack of a resource outside of their home range that they need to get to for whatever reason. They don't travel very far. So they're not as open to harvest or open to being, you know, involved in conflict or hit by a car anything like that and then our average age to give you kind of like a what you're saying is harvesting younger bears is absolutely true our average age for a harvested bear is really young here in Pennsylvania it's like two to three years old Mm -hmm. so granted they could be huge at that age depending on (laughs) where they were eating sure but they're very young when they're harvested a lot of it's just because that inexperience and you know traveling a lot greater distances than an adult with an established home range would travel. Makes sense to me. And I, I just, uh, we, we've been, we, we've done so many different hunts together and seen, you know, snow tells all and, you know, how many times we've been um, w- with a, a crew of guys and think there's no way that the, the track that we're on that's fresh is, is going to be able to get out the way we have this lined up. And I'm just amazed at how many times they've, evaded us and things that's like how is that even possible you know we had to be within um 20 to 30 yards you know what happened this year uh, we we were successful and and harvested um one of this one drive that we did but uh, we were we were past this bear in a in a thick um hardwood chop off and Mm -hmm. you know everybody that was walking in a line was between 20 and 30 yards apart and the the individual that was lucky enough to harvest the bear was a stander and the uh, the end driver walked 40 yards past that person and and we were already past them and and a a bear snuck out the back between us somehow some way and it it just it's mind-boggling the uh the indolent like just the intellectual capability that they have to evade us and, and how you can't even see them sometimes. I mean, sometimes when they're two, 300 pound animals, how can you not, how can you miss that? It's just, it's, I'm sounding simple, but it's, it's, it still mind boggles me. It really does. No, I completely agree. I mean, trust me, I've, I've had plenty of those experiences. I mean, just trapping bears, not necessarily hunting bears, just trapping bears, you know, we'll, we'll, once we're finished processing a bear and, he or she's ready to up and go. They just, they take off like 20 yards. And if I didn't see that bear go right there, 
you know, I'd be, I would have no idea that it's sitting in the woods because they just miraculously blend in so well. They know how to live in their environment and they are solitary creatures. So they intentionally don't want to be found. They don't want to have any kind of confrontation. Um, and this really kind of was like almost like a historical behavior because obviously on the East Coast, many, many moons ago, <laughs> there were other predators like mountain lions and wolves. Um, and, you know, grizzly bears expanded pretty far east, not necessarily on the East Coast, but, you know, as far as the Great Plains. And for black bears, all of those animals are potential threats. So they use and have used that that cover, forest cover, brushy cover as a way to remove themselves from an immediate safety threat for their entire evolutionary period. So when it comes to people, it's not any different. They go, that's a threat. I know how to get away. I'm just going to go. I'm going to sleuth through, be quiet, you know, as a mouse and being a 500 pound bear and sneak through the woods and just disappear. You know, we, I, I, I picked your brain a lot of things with the angle of coming to it from a hunting perspective or a strategy perspective. And of course that's what, what I love to do at heart, but I wouldn't mind, you know, we're closing in on an hour and your time is valuable, but I wouldn't mind if, if you would like to share a, any kind of cool experiences that have happened in the process of taking this job, whether that's, you know, a trapping experience, um, you, you know, just the day-to-day work, the communication you get to have with public, you know, whatever that would be. I mean, tell, you know, something that comes to your mind, um, we'd, we'd love to hear about it in your, your travels working with, with black bear. Yeah. So I, I think I have two things I'd love to touch on that are some of my favorite topics, sure. uh, are, you know, despite the idea of like human bear conflict is really never fun for anybody, but I do enjoy communicating with the public about how they can successfully and harmoniously live with black bears. It is very doable. And again, coming from an experience of growing up in Northern New Jersey, where there are a lot of bears and we dealt with them every summer. Um, it, it's amazing when you get the opportunity to see these bears, you know, like come across your backyard and just cross and you can watch them, but there's nothing that they're finding trouble and causing an issue. And I think a lot of people, both hunters and non-hunters just appreciate that opportunity to just see a bear because they are so beautiful and they're really incredibly respectable animals. I mean, I've seen bears just like I captured a bear once and it was like, had a missing paw and it was like clearly had been hit by a car at some point because the whole side of it was just like all scar tissue. The bear was like a brute. He was like 250 pounds, just solid Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) muscle had like battle scars from battling with other males. Mind you, this guy's like doesn't have a paw and is just casually battling away in the rock rock. And I was like, wow, like this is just insane. How incredibly awesome survivors there are. They are, And, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier on that, like, black bear recovery in Pennsylvania is a really fantastic story. You know, we went from, you know, roughly 4,000 bears in the early 80s to almost 20,000 bears and 20,000 bears in the 2010s, you know, like, it's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. Um, So having that opportunity to teach people that you don't have to be afraid, there's a very easy way to live with black bears and respect them and then they respect you and you can live harmoniously with them. And the second story I'll share, and which is something also, if there's, if there's ever any questions or concerns about like how to do that, 
please contact the game commission because mm-hmm. I love doing that. I love sharing that message. Our regional offices and our state game wardens are extremely knowledgeable when it comes to human blackbird conflict and how to do that. So please contact us if you have questions. Um, in addition to that, the one side story I'll tell you, which was pretty cool from this seven seasons, we actually went to a den and uh, we were expecting a yearling, which we found there was a yearling and a sow. And in addition to that, there was a tiny newborn cub because we went there in February, okay. which is a very rare circumstance um, because of the fact that females breed every other year. They have, they breed in, you know, roughly June, they go into that January, they have their cubs, they keep their cubs for another a little less than a year and a half. And then they kick the yearlings out and, um, you know, breed again. So this situation was pretty cool to experience the first time I've ever experienced it. And, um, I actually contacted some other bear biologists in our region in the Northeast and Southeast to see if they'd ever experienced it. And there were quite a few that haven't. There were quite a few that did once or twice in their okay. careers. Mind you, their careers are like, you know, half my, half how long I've been on the planet sure. and or more. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's pretty cool. I experienced this in my first like two years of being a bear biologist, you know? Absolutely. So very cool. One one technical question that I, I just thought of, and I'll ask you my last technical question. Is Maine still a concern in Pennsylvania for black bears? So we actually just, I just listened to our a PhD student. She just had her dissertation today from Penn State. And um, she did research looking at mange and how it affects the survival of black bears. Like, does mange kill black bears? Mm-hmm. And what she essentially found was basically 80% of bears that had a mild to even moderate infection of mange recovered within a year of that, of when they were, you know, caught, captured, put a GPS collar on them. And we saw them a year later, sometimes even, you know, five months later that these bears look like they never had a problem. It's it's wild. And this includes if the bear was treated with what we normally use or have used in the past, which is ivermectin. It's an antiparasitic. Um, it didn't matter if they were treated or not treated. They actually, most a lot of 80, 80% of the bears that were left untreated and had mild to moderate mange, they recovered. Which is wild when you think about it, because you see some of these bears and you're like, oh, God, they look like a chupacabra. Yeah. You know, it looks awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, but bears, again, they just are natural survivors. And we're finding that it actually really doesn't make a difference if we treat them or not. And it's something that we're looking to update in our management as we move forward to try and remove, you know, using any kind of medication in a wildlife population that is harvested. We always have to be considerate of how long these drugs stay in our system, you know, what kind of maybe, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, potential um, immunity we might be like building if, you know, maybe the, the might be, might become more resistant to the treatment right. of ivermectin. And we don't want to do that in our population. We want them to, kind of naturally have that immunity if they can and what we found is we really don't have to do anything that these bears survive on their own so in effect no i mean mange is a horrible looking disease it's it's really awful when you see a bear in bad shape but in the end 
despite the fact that Pennsylvania's had it since the early 1990s, we haven't seen a massive population effect. And Hannah's research, the PhD student that did this, kind of showed us why. It's because more often than not, bears survive and they recover. I don't know. That sounds like we, we've got to pick her brain yeah. for, for another episode yeah. on bear. That That's kind of interesting. That's, that's I'll really talk about bears all day. <laughs> Man. Well, hey, like I said, your your time is valuable. We really appreciate you coming on. Robbie, do you have any, any thoughts for Emily? Yeah, I just had one question I thought of, and we were you kind of touched on it. Um, and this, my question might not be qual- quantifiable, but with human population increasing and sort of cities and, and towns expanding out with suburbs, and the bear population also increasing, have you found that the bear population densities increased in more remote areas because those bear are getting pushed closer and closer together? Or are the bear, for lack of a better term, kind of pushing back against the humans and trying to like stay in their main area? And that's why we're getting more bear in suburban areas. Or like I said, is it not, you can't really find data on that? Or just what what are your thoughts on that or what have you seen with that? Um, so I don't have any exact numbers. Yeah. I'll just yeah, no. Yep. What I what I can say is that in areas that we have a lot of, you know, forest cover, which Pennsylvania is almost it's like slightly less than sixty percent forest cover, which is great bear habitat, right? Both both private and public land. Yeah. And the areas that have always had a significant amount of forest cover um, have always had healthy black bear populations. Um, with that being said, in areas where urbanization is occurring and we're seeing expansion of suburban and urban communities, we do see, especially into like where you get that forest edge, you get, you know, maybe a, a wooded area right up against a suburban community and if you're in bear territory, you're in bear country, more often than not, those communities are some of the first ones hit because they're right on the edge where these bears are living. Um, so bear conflict definitely increases in those scenarios. I don't foresee, you know, there ever really being like bears being in, in Pennsylvania in particular, being like isolated in pockets. We're pretty fortunate that there's a number of different, especially protected public lands, whether it's, you know, national forests, state game lands, you know, state forests and, and parks. We have a lot of protected land that helps with the movement of black bears. And that's actually something that maybe with some genetic work we have coming up, hopefully, that can help us identify some of those pathways and see, like, how bears are moving across the landscape. Um, but long story short, the end all be all is that if you live in bear country, you can have pretty much any density of bears. And if you don't have attractants or reasons for a bear to be in your yard, it won't be. So there are people in the Northeast that have lived in one of the most densely bear populated areas in the state for years and have never had a problem because they don't create problems. So in the end, it's entirely in the human's hands to be able to change whether or not we're going to experience that conflict. But that's that's something to definitely consider. And especially when you think about maybe not so much like the urban sprawl and seeing urban areas spread out, but seeing more people from maybe more urban areas visiting wild areas and understanding how to like interact with that okay. landscape yeah. appropriately and respectfully. So. 
Emily, do you have like any... I said, I could talk about bears forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to. We don't want to stop you. I mean, by all means, um, if you've got anything that you would like to share with us um, um, from the realm of what you're working on now, um, you, you know, just general knowledge that most people may, might not know about a bear. I mean, we're, we're all ears. Yeah, I think the most important thing I always like to impress on people when I talk about black bears is that they actively avoid people. You know, you don't have to worry about a bear coming out of nowhere and trying to go after you. Like, they don't look at, I always used to joke, especially when I worked in New York, we get a lot of calls from people that would be like, but you no, know, my toddler plays outside. And I'm like, this isn't like a hide your kids, hide your wives yeah. scenario. <laughs> you don't have to worry because black bears don't look at uh, a human child as a prey item. That's they look at a human child as a human. They're like, no, thank you. I'm, I'm good. They're going to actively avoid people. They don't want anything to do with your pets. The same thing with dogs. All the situations that I ever hear of the dog in particular being injured or harmed, or you know, even killed by a bear, it's always the dog's fault. Listen, I got two dogs, and I love them to death. And I will absolutely say that it is my responsibility to make sure that my dogs aren't going after a bear, and not, you know, the bear is never going to come after my dogs. It's just not the way it works. Like, especially my one dog. I know. Like, when I go into the woods, you're not going off leash, because you're never coming back if something comes through. So just realizing, like, how your actions absolutely affect how your interactions with any wildlife species is going to go is very important and, and really just impress with people that black bears want nothing to do with people. And when we respect wildlife, we get respect back. We don't have problems. So if people can live just respecting wildlife. I think they appreciate it and enjoy it a lot more. And the other thing I'll say really quick too, is I really appreciate you guys having me on here. I love talking about hunting. Personally, I'm very new to hunting. I did okay. not grow up in a hunting family. So on the flip side, I thoroughly have gained a massive appreciation, especially being a black bear manager and how much time and how much effort and how much money people spend to be a successful hunter, just mm. period, you know, <laughs> not even just black bear hunters. So I'm always happy to talk about the, the, management side of things when it comes to hunting because i think it's a culture that hopefully can remain for many years to come and i i feel sorry for agencies that don't get that opportunity because i think a lot of people miss how important hunting is as you know a cultural item when it comes to people in general whether you hunt or not so i appreciate you guys having this conversation certainly um you know we've got a an, an entire network on sportsman's empire that is dedicated to just talking about hunting and uh it's incredible how much of a you know you know how powerful it is and and, and how how much we talk in detail about these things and pennsylvania you know i'm biased i'm a pennsylvania resident and i think most pennsylvania individuals are but we do have a very strong hunting heritage in this state. We do have a lot of unique opportunities here. And bias or not, I, I think that's something to, to really, really cherish. And I, I appreciate the hard work that, you know, people like yourself do that we can, we can share this together. Um, because 
you know, for the for the non-hunting community, which I'm sure there's not a single non-hunting community person that that's listening to this, but um, <laughs> you, you know, it's it's not just about the kill. I truly love wildlife, and I truly yeah. love black bear. You know, I I was fortunate enough. Mm-hmm. I saw five black bear this past year during the fall and during our hunting season, and every single time, mm-hmm. it's just it is an experience to to see that. Yeah. Um, so a, a, a true blessing and. Uh, yeah, we're, we're glad to have us, and uh, I'll we'll be sure if, if, if you want to talk Black Bear, we'll have you on again. All right. That sounds like a plan to me, for sure. I would love to do that, guys, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. No problem. Have a good night.